So as we, as we get into our story this morning in our series, Rise of a King in 1 Samuel, uh, just want you to be thinking about what your most prized possession is. What is the thing that is worth more to you than all the money in the world? The thing that, that would devastate you if it were ever lost or stolen? Maybe in your mind it even has sacred value. As you think about that, for the nation of Israel, that most prized possession for them was, was what was called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. After Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt, um, he was led by a visible presence of God. They found themselves at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. They began to form themselves before God. God laid out for them a government and laws and social structures and formulized uh, religion. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the two stone tablets, and he instructed them to build a tabernacle. This tabernacle was a, was a mobile tent and it was their central place of worship where they made their sacrifices. And life was centered around the tabernacle. And the centerpiece of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. I think we have a picture here of it. This is what it would have looked like. It was uh, three and three quarters feet long, about two and a half, two and a quarter feet wide and two and a quarter feet high. It was covered in gold. And inside of this essentially uh, cabinet or this, this chest was the two stone tablets of the law. And during the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, when the Israelites broke camp to move, this, co- this Ark of the Covenant would be led in front of them, would lead the nation forward. On top of this chest was a gold slab. The lid was a solid gold slab, and it was cast with two angels. You can see there in the picture what this may have looked like. Uh, two angels facing each other, and that, that lid of solid gold was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the throne of God on earth. It was not intended to represent God. It was not an idol. Unlike every other pagan nation at the time, the Israelites were forbidden from making a, a graven image of their God. God can't be contained in an image on earth. And actually, you and I, uh, male and female, are created in the image of God. We are the image of God. But this mercy seat represented the the presence and the power of God. In Exodus 25, the Lord is instructing Moses, and he says this in Exodus 25, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, that's the Ten Commandments, that I shall give you. And he says, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. That was the spirit. The location where God would meet and speak with Moses, where his presence would dwell. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would would make the appropriate sacrifices. He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Only happened once a year to atone for the sin of the nation. Now once the Israelites got settled in the Promised Land, the Ark of the Covenant was set up in the tabernacle in Shiloh. It moved a few different times, but eventually... David moved it to the capital city of Jerusalem, and King Solomon would eventually build a permanent temple for this ark. Now, the ark didn't just represent the power of God. It it was where the presence and the glory of God manifested on earth. It held the Ten Commandments. As I said, the entire society was structured around that. It was the center of culture, of society, of government, of religion, of worship. If you read on in the history of Israel, sadly, after hundreds of years, the people fall into idolatry and rebellion. God ends up sending in the Babylonians. They sack the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, and the ark of God is taken, never to be seen again. 
But during the period of its existence, there was no greater possession for the nation of Israel on earth. And this morning, as we now turn to chapters 4 through 6, we're going to read about this ark of God in the day of Samuel. And it's a sad story about the ark of God being stolen. This, This morning's story is a tragedy. There's no happy ending this morning. There are no heroes in the story this morning. And, and yes, it's not a misprint. We are going to cover four chapters of 1 Samuel today. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that, is that the best way to read and study and interpret a narrative in the Bible, a story in the Bible, is to read through the entire story to finish the story arc, right? From the opening to the tension to the climax, then to the resolution, When you're reading the New Testament, you can take like five verses, right, and have a whole Bible study, a whole sermon on five verses. But often in the Old Testament, the narrative stories take entire chapters. And so we're going to cover the entire story this morning. And I'll be honest, I kind of wrestled with how to break this up. Um, Back in the summer when I was laying things out, it seemed to make sense to do it all in one week. And then this week I was like, this is a mistake. There's no way I can cover three chapters. So we'll see how this goes. (laughs) Be gracious with me. Um, But not only are we studying three whole chapters of the Old Testament, it's an odd, complicated story. We're going to meet the Philistines and and war and a blind man that falls off of a chair and a woman who's dying in childbirth and the the idol of Dagon. And and, and we're going to read about golden tumors and golden mice. And we're going to read about cows that have never been milked that are, are towing a cart. And, and if you're here this morning and you're new or you're visiting, you might think, this is odd. What have I just walked into? But I want, let me tell you, take heart. Please take heart. Listen, God's people, Christians, have been studying this exact story for thousands of years because it is the inspired Word of God, because it was written for us as Christians, and I believe that it can build our faith and that it can point us to Christ. And so if you will just keep your hearts and your minds open this morning, I will guarantee that you're going to be blown away by God's Word, what it can teach you, and how it's going to point you to Jesus. And so as we read this morning, I'm going to begin in chapter 4 and just begin with the first chapter. six verses. And as we do this, as we read all this, I want to structure and organize our time around four groups of people that we're going to meet and their view of the ark. And so we're going to begin with the army of Israel. How did the army of Israel view the ark? So if you would, let's, let's read together the first few verses of the chapter. Now the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines had camped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. 
Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Let's pause there for a moment. So you can imagine, gathered on the battlefield, the army of Israel, the army of the Philistines, who were settled along the west by the coast of the Mediterranean, these inhabitants of the land that had not been driven out when the Israelites came into the promised land. And we get no indication in the text of why they're going to war. We don't know if there's a threat. We don't know if the Philistines struck first. It does seem like that God has maybe not led them into battle. We read in verses 2 and 3 that in the first battle that the Israelites lose. They, in fact, they lose 4,000 men that day, and they're despondent at the lost, and they attribute the defeat to God. Did you notice that? See, they, they acknowledge in verses 2 and 3 that God has all power. He's the one that brings victory, and so it must be him that brought defeat. Now, what's interesting is after the first day of loss, rather than pray, rather than gather together and fast or confess their sin or consult the law of God in the Torah, rather than call in the prophet Samuel for his wisdom, they don't do any of that. The military leaders just come up with their own idea based upon what I believe is, is what seemed good to them, and it's a bold move in verse 3. They're like, let's go get the ark of the covenant. Let, let's send to Shiloh. Let's get the, the two priests, Eli and Phineas. which if Eli and Phineas are involved, right, we've learned in 1 Samuel this can't be good because these guys are, are not godly leaders. But they think, let's bring this element of God's power into battle with us. After all, the Lord is the Lord of hosts. That means lords of armies, right? He's seated on the mercy seat. Surely this will bring us victory. And so the, the ark shows up in the camp and, and everybody shouts. I mean, this is like a battle cry, right? This is their, their most sacred possession. And, and they're shouting, and they're, they're, the, these, these warriors all right, are in battle mode. The ground is literally shaking. The Philistines hear about it from their, from their camp. They wonder what in the world is going on. They find out that the Ark of the Covenant is in their enemy's camp. Now, the Philistines, they've heard of the Ark, right? 400 years ago, they still remember the legend of how God had led his people out of slavery and how plagues had been brought against the Egyptians, right? And the Philistines now, they're literally shaking with fear. They're like, this has never happened. Nobody's ever brought out like the presence of God into battle. Now, the author has set up this scene beautifully, right? Like, this is like the climax. You're like, this is it. God's going to like conquer the Philistines, right? This is a done deal. Let's go out there. Let's put a hurting on on these godless Philistines, right? Because God is with us. Read verse 10 of what happens. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, if you've never heard this story or you're reading it again for the first time with fresh eyes, like you get to this point, what should be the climax of the story, and you're like, wait a minute, what? What? That's not what's supposed to happen. Right? This is not how the story is supposed to go. The Israelites should, should defeat the enemy. They've gone out with great confidence, but to no avail. They've lost 30,000 men. The battle, this entire war is, is lost. But to make matters worse, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. Hophni and Phinehas die. We've read earlier in 1 Samuel that this was prophesied. This was an indication that their doom was coming. What in the world is going on? Here, here's what I think. I think that the actions of the army of Israel was based upon a, a gravely mistaken view of the ark. And what we find out is that they are bold, but they're bold without trust. 
They're bold without trust. See, they act in great confidence, right? But it's based upon a wrong view of the ark. It's based upon a lack of trust in Yahweh. And so they misuse the ark. What had been around for 400 years, I think in many ways the people lost sight of what it is that they really had. They become presumptuous. They assume they know the right thing to do. They assume that God is with them. And so they cart out the ark to, so to speak, fight the battles that they want to fight. Now, I read and studied, and I can't find a specific law that prevented the ark of being taken out of the tabernacle onto the field of battle, but let's just say it had never been done before. Right? Ever since the Israelites had finished their pilgrimage, had come into the promised land, ever since they had marched around the walls of Jerusalem, which that actually wasn't even a battle, the ark of the covenant marched around the walls of excuse me, Jericho, that was like a worship service, the walls came down, and then the ark it goes into the tabernacle. Why in the world they thought now to bring it out as an element of war without God's clear direction, I I can't even think of why they would do that. Listen, the ark of God is not a religious token brought out to perform a miracle. It was never intended to be a good luck charm that the army could use to win a battle. It was not a security blanket to make them feel better. It was not a trophy that they could parade around. And yet they treat the ark, and by extension, I would say God himself, like an object. Right, like a token to do their bidding. They want God to serve their needs, their agenda. And they're very bold, declaring, like, we want to fight the Philistines. God, come win our battles for us. But do you realize they're treating God like their servant? They act like God is there to do what they want. Now, you have to admire their bravery and their boldness, but they're doing it without trusting in God. There's no reliance on God. There's no humility. There's no attempt to seek God's will. And if they had carted out a thousand arcs, it wouldn't have brought them victory that day because God was not with them. Their faith and their trust was not in him. There is no awe. There is no reverence for the ark or for the God whom it represents. And they do not trust the God who dwells there. And so there's a sad end to the day. We go on to read in chapter 4 what happens when the news is reported, and we read the reaction of two specific people, Eli and his daughter-in-law. Let's jump down into chapter 4 and read about what happens to Eli and his daughter-in-law. We read in in verse uh, 12 that a messenger runs from the battlefield. It would have been over 20 miles. He runs from, from the front lines to Shiloh. He tells the city what's happened. Eli is sitting by the road. Now, we know at this point he's old, right? He's losing a step. But he's waiting to hear uh, about the battle. He's shaking with fear, we read. Why? Because he's worried about the ark. Eli, it seems, was never a proponent of the ark going out to battle. Eli hears all the commotion going on in the city. The messenger comes to Eli and look at verse 17. Chapter 4 says, He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of sad and pathetic. You're right. It's kind of sad and pathetic, right? It's intended to be. It's intended to be. This old man, this prophet who no longer has a heart for God, he's devastated by the defeat of Israel, devastated by the death of his sons. He knows that the death of his sons is coming. It's been prophesied. And he knows that this fulfillment of that is the fulfillment of judgment. But did you notice it's not actually the loss of his sons that causes his greatest agony. It said as soon as he heard that the ark of God had been captured, 
that was more than he could take. And in his grief and in his agony, he falls out of his chair, he breaks his neck, and he dies. This sad, sad man who long ago gave up his will to fight, and yet somehow, even knowing he'll face judgment, still somehow he recognizes the glory of God. He recognizes how devastating this is for the nation. And his daughter-in-law has a similar response, fleshed out in even more detail. Listen to what happens to this godly woman in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman, women attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Again, what another tragic story. Another response. Phineas' wife, she hears the news that the ark has been captured. She's traumatized, right? Now apparently there's no love lost for her dirtbag husband, Phineas, who died in the battle, right? She's long ago given up hope on him. He's been sleeping around. He's been abusing his power. But the ark of God's been captured. That's a reason for trauma. That's a reason to be devastated. And so she's literally now gone into early childbirth. Her contractions start. She's giving birth. She's on the edge of, of death. And as she's dying, she names her son Ichabod, which in Hebrew meant no glory. She's like, I'm going out of this life, but my son will remain, and his name will remind all of Israel, this is a day of no glory. The midwives try to comfort her. Hey, look, you have a son. It's going to be okay. And in her dying breath, she says, no, this is it. The glory of God has departed Israel. The ark has been captured. Now, here's the question that I wrestled with as I I read this. Do Eli and his daughter-in-law, do they have a righteous, godly view of what's happened? Is it right for them to grieve so, so gravely the capture of the ark? Well, yes and no. They appropriately recognize the significance of the ark of the covenant. They revere God. Eli knows that it represents the blessing and glory of God. They both have great reverence for the ark. Eli's daughter-in-law is rightly overcome with sorrow because, yes, in fact, the glory of God had been taken from Israel. It's no small thing. It's a sign of God's displeasure, a sign that God is removing his blessing from the nation. But in her grief, it literally killed her. I believe ultimately it killed her because she had sorrow without hope. She's in utter despair with no, no glimmer of hope. Yes, she should grieve and be sorrowful for what it meant for Israel, but she's lost any glimmer of hope in the God of Israel. See, with the ark gone, God's blessing may have been gone, but the God of Israel was still there. There still could and I believe should have been a reason for hope, but they, in essence, are overcome. Their hearts are broken, and their broken hearts literally cause both Eli and his daughter-in-law to die because their sorrow is absent of any hope, any trust in the God of Israel and his plan and his purpose. Let's read next what happens in chapter 5 as we look at the Philistines. Look at at chapter 5. We're going to read verse 1 to 7 and see what happens after they capture the ark. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. 
And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. That is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Let, let's pause there. Let me try to unpack this. I know, I know this, is a, this is bizarre, right? You're like, who in the world is Dagon, and what is he doing in the Bible? So they bring, they bring the ark back, the Philistines, right? This for them was a trophy. It was common in ancient warfare to plunder the enemy, to take an idol or a symbol of their defeated god. And they, they put it in the temple as essentially an offering to their national god, Dagon, to put it as a treasure, as a, as a treasure of their defeated enemy. But the next day they wake up, they come in, their, their idol... Their statue has fallen over. It's laying face down, prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They pick it back up. They set it up. The next day, same thing happens. This time, the head is broken off. The hands have broken off. The, the false god of Dagon is basically face down in a position of submission before the Ark of the Covenant, right? See, listen. The army of Israel has been defeated. The most precious symbol of God's power and glory has been taken as a trophy, a souvenir of war, but God has not been eliminated. And God, Yahweh, is not going to allow his name and his reputation to be humiliated, and he is showing right there in this false temple who has the true authority. And this false god of Dagon will be defeated even in his own temple. We go on to read what happens in verses 6 and 7. Actually, three times in that chapter, we read that the hand of God was heavy upon the Philistine people. When we read that the the Lord's hand is heavy, that means heavy with judgment. And so this plague breaks out in the city. There's great panic. The people are afflicted. There's terrible tumors all over their body. Thousands of people die. We find out later in chapter 6 that the plague was being spread by rodents, by mice or rats. And so many scholars theorize that what they were suffering from was the bubonic plague. That was harder to say than I thought. We're suffering from the bubonic plague, right? That was spread by rodents that led to tumors, essentially swollen lymph nodes that was catastrophic. But regardless of what the disease and the plague was, in verse 7 we learn that it's terrible and that the people basically cry out, we got to get the ark out of here. The God of Israel is trying to kill us, right? They have a fear of God, a fear of his judgment. But instead of doing something righteous with their, with their fear, instead of perhaps turning and worshiping the Ark of the Covenant and the God it represents, we go on to read in the rest of chapter 6 and the rest of chapter 7, I'm going to just summarize it, how the Ark of the Covenant bounces around their land for seven months and they like, the, the, the residents of, of Ashdod are like, we don't want it here. They give it to another city. That city has the same thing happen. A plague breaks out. They give it to another city. Finally, after seven months of this, The rulers of the five biggest cities in Philistine gather together. They consult with their pagan priests and fortune tellers. And they're like, what are we going to do with this thing? Nobody here wants it. And they're finally like, maybe we should send it back to Israel. But they send it back to Israel, the priests suggest, with a guilt offering, right? 
they, they basically want to buy off the God of Israel and hope that the plague will stop. They know that they've offended him. They have enough understanding that this God is in authority. We're facing a plague, and they, they want to offer gold back to Israel and his God. And so it's interesting, if you read ahead this week with us, they melt and shape the gold into the image of five golden tumors and five golden mice, right? As if to say, here, take your ark, take your plague, like, please leave us alone, right? And they're going to send the ark back to the people of Israel, What's most striking, if you glance down in chapter 6, verse 5, these pagan priests, they say that as they make this offering, it will be a way to give glory to the God of Israel. See, even these unbelievers recognize the God of Israel, and they they have godly fear, and they want to appease the God of Israel. They recognize His power and His glory, but yet even in that, they don't submit, they don't repent. In fact, they do everything that they can do to try to convince themselves maybe the plague is not actually from God. Maybe it's not actually because we stole this sacred element. And so what's interesting is if you, if you read this week, it's, it's very ingenious what they do. They say, look, we're going to set up a little test because we don't really want to send it back. So what we're going to do is we're going to get two cows, follow with me, two cows that have never pulled a cart, two milk cows who have their, their young calves in a barn they're still milking. We're going we're gonna to rope them to a cart. We're going to have them pull the cart into Israel. And maybe there's a chance that instead of these milk cows pulling the cart into Israel, they'll do what most cows would do. They'll return back to the barn where they're still milking calves are, right? But if, if this cart actually goes back to Israel, and these cows that have never pulled a cart before, if they leave their young at home and actually go back to Israel, they say, then we'll know. Then we'll know that it was God that was causing the plague. Verse 6, 9, they say, then it is God who has done us, then we'll know it is God who has done us great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. And you think, really, Philistines? Like, that's what you're holding on to? Maybe this whole thing was a big coincidence, right? Maybe, maybe our statue just fell over. Maybe the plague just happened to come every time the ark go, went to a different city. They have the ark in the land. They, they recognize to some extent the power and authority of God, but they don't have a right view of God or the ark that it represents. And they're still holding on to hope. Maybe God is really not an authority over us. Maybe he's not the one calling all of this. Maybe it's all just a big coincidence. See, ultimately the Philistines have fear, but it's a fear that does not lead to repentance. It's a fear without faith, without turning to God in repentance. These non-believers have genuinely experienced the consequences of their sin. We know from chapter 4, verse 5, that they are afraid of the power of Yahweh. But rather than submit, rather than say, you know what, maybe we should turn to this God. Maybe Dagon, who's now has his head broken off, maybe we shouldn't be worshiping him. Maybe we should be worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. But instead, what do they do? They stand firm in their defiance. They say, let's just get this God as far away from us as we can. Now, what's sad is that we read in the Old Testament, despite the fact that the Israelites were the covenant people of God, there were Gentiles who did repent and come to God. God sent the prophet Jonah to the pagan city of Nineveh, and the entire entire city repented and was spared. But yet here these Philistines are, with what you could argue was a privilege, the presence of God in their midst, that they are rightly 
fearful of the judgment of God, but they're unwilling to respond with humility or with repentance or with faith. Rather than draw near to God and find grace, what do they do? They push him away. They say, get out of here. Go back to Israel. We want nothing to do with you because they have a fear, a righteous fear, but it's not one that leads to repentance. Look at what happens in chapter 6. After the ark arrives in Israelite territory. Pick up with me in in chapter 6, verse 13. We're going to look at our final group of people, the the townspeople of Israel. The Word of God says this. They they send it into the first town across the Israelite border, which was Beth Shemesh. So now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Can you imagine that? The Israelites have no idea what's happening in Philistine and with the ark. It's been seven months since their great defeat. Seven months since they've had the ark. Seven months since they haven't found anyone brave enough to go in to try to take the ark back. You can imagine them hopeless, despondent, and now these, these townspeople, they're nobodies. They're just out working in the field, and they see this random cart coming across the border. And as it draws closer, you can imagine them seeing the gold shining and thinking to themselves, what is that? And then they recognize it as the ark of the covenant. Can you imagine the joy. They're overjoyed, we read. I can imagine them shouting and singing and praising and telling other people. They call the Levites. The Levites were the, 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 the ones who would care for the ark and care for the sacrifices in the temple, but they lived throughout the year in various towns. And so the Levites from that town, they come and they take the ark down and they carefully set it down. They break up the cart. They make a fire. They, they offer these cows as a sacrifice to God, to give thanks, to worship, to rejoice, to celebrate. What a joyful celebration that day must have been. The ark of God, His presence, His power has come back to us. And yet I told you that this whole story is a tragedy. Look at what happens in verse 19. It's kind of an after scene. We wish it would just end. We wish the credits would roll, but there's another scene. It says, and He, that's the Lord, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the men mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kareth Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now again, we read this and, and we, we sort of shake our heads a little bit. What? What in the world has just happened? There's celebration. There's joy. There's praise. And yet in the midst of this, either in the moment of that day or perhaps days later, certain men of the town get curious. They start looking at the ark with selfish, bad intentions. Now, the ESV translate that as they looked upon the ark. But most other translations translate that pronoun or that uh, preposition, which is a little bit ambiguous in the Hebrew. Most other translations translate it as they looked into the ark of the Lord, right? Which may give a little bit more clarification. 
right? The Ark of the Covenant, the most powerful sacred possession of all of Israel. Most Israelites have never even seen it. Most priests have never even seen it. Certainly nobody's looked inside of it for 400 years since the time that they put the tablets of the Ten Commandments in. These, these townspeople have no business touching the ark. They certainly have no business opening it and looking inside. What they've done is completely irreverent and it defiles the holiness of the ark. But perhaps most tragically, even once they've made this mistake, rather than recognize the consequences of their carelessness, rather than repent and ask God for forgiveness, they do the same things the Philistines did, and they say, we just got to get rid of this ark, and they want to push it away, and they call to another town, and they say, will you take this thing from us, because we don't want anything to do with it. God is too holy. We can't keep our act together. We don't want the responsibility of being the ones to hold the ark. We go on to read in the first two verses of chapter 7 that this next town does in fact take it, but it in essence gets downgraded, and for 20 years it is set aside. And rather than the ark being revered as the central figure of God's glory and presence, it is essentially packed up, reading between the lines, put, put away in a shed. It's ignored as a relic of the past. And it's not for 20 years later when David becomes king that he goes and gets it out of storage. He brings it back into the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And what started out for those townspeople as great celebration has turned into tragedy because of their mistaken view of the ark. See, they have joy, but it's a joy without any reverence. It's a careless joy. They're excited, they celebrate, they offer sacrifices to God, but they're careless and they have no reverence or obedience. They look to where they shouldn't have, they disobey the law, they disregard God's holiness. I believe if they had truly understood the heart of God, even after they had faced the consequences of their initial irreverence, they wouldn't have pushed him away. They wouldn't have sent the ark to another town. They would have drawn close to God because when you draw close to God, you find peace and forgiveness. But instead, they push him away. They don't want anything to do with the ark. So look, I know that was a lot. We've seen four groups of people, what I believe to be four mistaken views of the ark. The Israelites, who initially have great boldness, but it's a boldness without faith, right? Without trusting in God. We saw Eli and his daughter-in-law, who rightfully are, are full of sorrow, but it's a sorrow without hope. We've seen the Philistines, who, who have a sense of of the power of God. They're, they, they're fearful of God, but it's a fear that doesn't lead to worship and repentance. And we see the townspeople that have great joy and celebration, but, but no reverence. And as you can imagine, I'm going to ask us to, to look at our own hearts this morning. But before we do that, before we see what we can learn from each of these four groups, we need to ask a key question. Where is Jesus in this story? Right? We've talked about how as we read the Old Testament, we're going to do so with a fulfillment approach. That means we expect every story, prophecy, promise, character, every theme to be fulfilled in Christ. How is this story fulfilled in Christ? Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus being foreshadowed? He's not foreshadowed in the Philistines. He's not foreshadowed in the battle that was lost or in Eli who fell over and broke his neck. He's not foreshadowed in the, in the townspeople. I believe that the ark of God itself is actually what foreshadows the coming of the very Son of God. Listen, Christ fulfills the Ark of the Covenant. Think about it for a minute. The Ark held the law of God. Jesus comes to earth, God in the flesh, and embodies the law of God. 
The ark contained the presence of God for worship. Jesus was the presence of God dwelling on earth. The ark was the the pinnacle of the sacrificial system where on the day of atonement the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood. Jesus came and completed the sacrificial system. He is the final sacrifice of atonement for sin. The ark was the throne of God on earth. The Son of God comes and he sits on the throne of God on the throne of grace. What's interesting is that when Jesus was born, the ark of God wasn't even in the temple anymore. As I mentioned earlier, a few hundred years before Jesus was born, the ark was again stolen by the Babylonians. It was lost and destroyed. It was never found. It was never replaced. And here's the thing. It didn't need to be replaced. Because one day, God's plan was for the very presence of God to dwell among his people in human form, not on a golden box in a temple, but in the living, breathing Son of God. Jesus, in fact, claimed to be the temple of God, the dwelling place of God on earth. And he told the Pharisees, he said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And for that claim, for claiming to be the dwelling place of God on earth, Jesus was killed. And just as he predicted, he rose again three days later. He rebuilt that temple. When Jesus said, I am the temple, he was essentially saying, I am the center of worship. He was saying, I am the source of atonement from sin. Jesus was saying, I am the presence of God on earth in your life. I am the one who sits on the mercy seat, the very throne of God. And so that's where we put our faith. That's where we center ourselves. In a few moments, we'll come to this this table, these symbols of the Lord's death, symbols of his atonement, symbols of his presence for us. But the question still remains, how will you rightly view, how will you rightly relate with the true ark of God, the Son of God? As as I said, I believe no one in this story actually got it right. They all misunderstood. They all mistreated. They all didn't look appropriately on the ark, on the presence and the power of God on earth. Nobody put the ark of God in its rightful place. Nobody put the ark in the right place. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us to put Jesus who fulfills the ark in his rightful place in our lives? I believe we can look at those same four groups and we can walk away with four very personal, practical ways to center your life on Jesus. The first is that you are called to boldness, but it's a boldness with trust. See, we are called to be bold. We are called to be courageous. But as you can see on this summary, summary slide, it's a, it's a boldness with trust. Friends, listen, you're called to be men and women of passion, but when you fight battles, it must be the Lord's battles. The book of Romans in the New Testament calls us to have zeal for God, but a zeal according to knowledge. And just as the ark was not some religious token used to perform a miracle, neither is Jesus in your life. Jesus is not some good luck charm that you can pull out whenever you want to win a fight. Jesus is not a security blanket to make you feel comfortable. Jesus is not a trophy that you get to parade around. And and listen, I know I'm meddling, but I say in love, you can't just wear a cross necklace and just put a Bible on the corner of your desk and, and maybe read the verse of the day when you have time and then expect God to fight your battles and expect God to get behind whatever you happen to be passionate about on that day or that season of life. Yes, we need to be bold, but not bold in our own strength, not bold for our own purposes, bold in humble trust in our Savior Jesus. 
Being bold for God doesn't give you the right to go on a rampage like the Israelites did that day against whatever you want. We're called to fight the Lord's battles with the Lord's weapons in humility, in faith, in love, in grace, trusting in God all the way. The right view of of Jesus in your life should stir you at times, yes, to sorrow, but it's a sorrow with hope. Like Eli and his daughter-in-law, there are times when tragedy falls on us on friends, on loved ones, and it is appropriate for Christians to grieve. Please don't get caught up in this nonsense of like, well, God's good, it's okay. God is good, it may be okay one day, but on the day of your loss and on your grief, you should have sorrow. And when you experience the presence of God leaving a person and a child who you thought knew the Lord and now has walked away, when you see the glory of God leaving a family that's no longer committed themselves to Him, when you see a church that 5, 10, 20 years ago used to be preaching the gospel, used to be filled with the Holy Spirit, has now walked away from the authority of God's Word, it is right to grieve. When you see the glory of God leave a people, leave a nation, it is appropriate that we as Christians have sorrow, but it is not a sorrow without hope. The New Testament goes on to say that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. You may be grieving today, but is it, is it a grief infused with the hope of the resurrection? Because Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And so there is always hope for that lost child. There is always hope for that family that has walked away. There is always hope even for that church that's no longer standing on the true gospel. There's always hope for our nation and for any nation because Christ is King. Amen? And so we grieve, but we grieve with hope. There are appropriate times for fear, but fear should always lead to repentance. The Philistines are essentially non-believers in the story. They were not a nation in covenant with Yahweh, and when they see his power, they're rightfully afraid, but they fail to turn to him in repentance. Non-believers today, in 2021, are not in covenant with God. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord, maybe you've just walked in here curious about what's going on at Living Hope Church. And maybe you hear the stories or you hear the testimony of this God of the Bible and maybe it stirs you to fear. Maybe you're turned off. Maybe you're inclined like the Philistines were to just push him away. I just need to get this God as far away from me as I can because I don't want to deal with my issues. Friends, listen. You may start out in fear, but you don't need to stay in fear. If you're here this morning and you're confronted with your own brokenness, your own guilt, your own hurt, your own shame, your own need for forgiveness, come to Jesus in faith. Don't push him away. Draw close in faith. Come in repentance. Pour yourself out before him. Acknowledge your brokenness and you will find forgiveness. You will find life, eternal life. You will find the love of God, your creator, to confirm and restore, to build you up. No longer a person living in fear, but living in faith, living in intimacy with a God, a God who you once wanted nothing to do with. Now you can draw close through faith and through repentance, through the work of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, a right view of Jesus at the center of our lives means joy, but it's a joy with reverence. Just as the return of the ark caused rejoicing, the Son of God in your life should lead to a life of rejoicing. When we live in God's presence, we should be people of fun, people of joy, people of freedom, people of hope, people of celebration, but not in a way that's careless, not in a way that's dismissive, We need appropriate reverence for the holiness of God. And so our joy and our worship must be done with obedience, with a right view of God's honor and God's glory. Man, I hope and I pray.
that at least one of these areas has struck your heart this morning and, and that this, the, the Holy Spirit is, is working in you. That you would walk out of here living in a right view of Jesus in the center of your, of your life. This great ark of God, this great son of God that has come for us, that has come to fulfill both this story, the sacrificial system, the temple, the ark of God, the promises and the prophecies. Jesus has come. And that means for you and I, life has come. But it all begins at the cross. It all begins at the empty tomb. And so in a moment, we're going to come up and receive these elements. Not, not coming, standing at a distance, trembling before an ark, but coming, I believe, with confidence up to this table. Not confident in who you are, not confident in how much you, you did for the Lord this week, but coming up confidently in faith, knowing that Jesus is my Savior and I hold on to Him.